welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, Peter the Great is known to history as the Russian ruler who pushed for the westernization of his kingdom, who defeated Sweden, thereby making Russia a Baltic power, and who then built a great capital on that Baltic Sea to be Russia's window to the west. Yet on his deathbed, Peter was thinking of Asia, dreaming of a passage to China and India through the Arctic Sea. This is one of the vignettes with which Chris Miller begins his new book, We Shall Be Masters, Russia's Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin. As Miller makes clear, Russia has never been constantly interested in Asia, but cyclically interested. What can explain these cycles of fascination and indifference? Chris Miller is assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He was last heard on Historically Thinking in episode 153 discussing the Chinese surveillance state. Chris Miller, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. So um, let's begin where I just began with that that vignette of uh, of, of Peter the Great. Why is that? Um, you probably should explain to uh, those of us, like probably most of the people listening to this podcast, uh, why is um, that sort of anecdote against the grain? Well, when when we think of of Peter the Great, and, and I would argue when we think of Russian diplomacy uh, more generally, we think of its relationship with Europe, and and this is true both of the Russian historiography, but also of European and American. Um, we, we focus on the Napoleonic Wars and Russia's participation in them. We think about Russia in World War I and World War II, which, which we remember being is primarily on the European front, although there were Asian aspects to both of those uh, conflicts. And it's certainly true that Russia has, for several hundred years, been a fundamentally important player in European geopolitics. It's shaped uh, how the European international order was structured. Um, but from the perspective of Russia, it hasn't only been about Europe. And one of the fascinating things uh, that I learned while uh, beginning this project is the extent to which at certain points, but repeatedly throughout history, Russia has played a really decisive role in Asia, at least for a period of time. And you've got uh, these spasms of activity in Asia, um, starting, I would argue, uh, to a certain extent with Peter, but continuing uh, in the three centuries since then, where Russia has devoted a whole lot of energy uh, to Asian affairs, building an empire in the Pacific, expanding its influence uh, in China, expanding its relations with Japan that I think are generally underplayed in our assessments of uh, Russian diplomacy. And I would argue you can't really understand Russia's role in the world stage without putting Asia a bit closer to the center than we've traditionally put it. So there is uh, always this question, is Russia a European country? And you're suggesting that's, of course, I mean, it's one of those questions that historians really hate. Um, and you have to explain why you, this particular historian I'm talking to, why you hate that one. <laughs> well, I think that the striking thing, if you look over the long durée from, say, Peter to the present, although you could even go before Peter the Great, is the extent to which the way Russians defined Europe and the way they defined the lands that they referred to as the East, which is a, a phrase that uh, endures in, in, in Russian thinking today much more so than it does in, in Western thinking, both these terms changed really substantially over time. Uh, so, for example, if you look at uh, in the late Tsarist period, the late 
19th and early 20th centuries, and the parts of the foreign ministry that were tasked with dealing with the East, Eastern affairs, you know, that ran from the the borders of the Austro Habs uh, the, the Austro Habsburg uh, lands all the way to China and to Japan. So the East was a, a really broad territory, and within that there was the Caucasus, uh, a, a fundamental part of Russia's imperial expansion. There was Central Asia, uh, which uh, Russia was was also in the late Tsarist period building a colonial empire in, and there were relations with the the great powers in Asia, uh, the Qing Empire, uh, Japan, and 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 the and the British and the Americans in Asia too. And so all these different areas were, were considered uh, Eastern in some sense and different from European. So I think the, the key thing that I came away with is, is the extent to which these concepts of Europe and Asia are actually not at all fixed in Russian thinking. Uh, and the ways that they change are shaped both by domestic politics and intellectual trends in Russia, but also by the geopolitical landscape, because it's it's important and useful for Russia to describe territories in different categories at different times. And so I think the ways that Russian elites put territories in the European category or the Asian category are, are in some ways more important than understanding which mm -hmm. category Russia itself falls into it as if we could categorize it in mm -hmm. an immutable way yeah. uh, over time. That's very interesting. Um, it, it struck me as I was reading the the beginning of the book that there's, um, we, as you as we've said, as the title says, it begins with Peter the Great. Uh, yet um, the Russia's connection to connections to Asia go back much farther um, to at least when the Mongol horde shows up on the horizon. Uh, for, so for a while, Russia experiences something which very few, I guess Hungary did, very few other Ru uh, European powers have done. They've been ruled from the east. Um, their rulers were in the in the east, and so that's one big context, right? I mean, does, does that mm -hmm. is that does that ref, that certainly reflects itself um, at the very beginning of this period when they're still fighting the descendants of those Mongols? Mm -hmm. um, does and I, I imagine that is um, a sort of uh, often brought up in the in the tradition of thinking about Asia. Very much so, and it's. It's used as a as a trope in Russian politics repeatedly up to the present, um, especially by those who want to assert difference with Europe. Uh -huh. We're different from Europe, the argument goes, um, because we've got this quote unquote Asian legacy or this Eastern legacy. Um, and I think we could we could debate, and there's there's a, a long debate in the historiography as to to what extent the the Mongol legacy really did shape Russian politics after several centuries. Uh, to a certain extent, every historical legacy has some effect, but they also mm -hmm. uh, they also yeah. run out over time. Um, but what we can say with confidence is that uh, Russians have repeatedly brought this up as something that distinguishes them from Europe. And, and those that wanted to be closer to Europe denied it. Those that wanted to push themselves apart from Europe uh, played it up. But it, as recently as in the last couple of years, um, as as uh, Russians have tried to assert their their distance from Europe and closer ties with China today, mm -hmm. uh, people are still citing the the Mongol yoke as an example of of, of why Russia is in fact different. The uh, it strikes me when we, we get to in a little bit around 1900 when there's this yellow peril talk. Um, if you look at sort of English uh, Orientalist um, uh, xenophobia um, all the way through the Fu Manchu novels, that's always a little odd. Okay, leaving India out of it. Um, uh, it's a little odd to read that stuff from coming out of American pulp printing presses or out of, of London pulp printing presses. Uh, however removed, however contrived, however much an invented tradition, at least Russians could say, well, that's actually, we did, you know, have you seen Kiev? Um, you know, that happened. 
um, th- this was this is something they can reach back to uh, as almost a story of um, of oppression um, and and, vic- and victimhood to use more mm-hmm. modern terms. Um, mm-hmm. They might say more martyrdom. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think I think that is present um, when the the sort of yellow peril fear was at its peak in the the late nineteenth um, century. But I, I think next to that, there was always a, a fair amount of the irrational mm-hmm. uh, involved there. I, and I was always struck by the the officials on the the far eastern frontier who were most hyping uh, the, the the quote unquote danger of of Chinese or Korean or Japanese immigration. They were also citing statistics of you know hundreds or a couple thousand yeah. <laughs> uh, Chinese immigrants in the Russian far east. When you add that up and you say yeah. you know how. How worried should you have really yeah. been? So I, I'm always I, I am struck by the, the they, they just the have a, they just have a peg, a very distant historical peg they can hang their their idea on. I guess that, that could well be. Um, yeah, in 17th century, uh, I'm, I forget which historian said this, but there was um, one of the reasons why this becomes an issue is because um, a series of I don't want to call them armed expeditions, um, you know. Uh, of proceed so far into Siberia, I forget what historian said that you. It's easier to measure them by the degrees of longitude that they travel than by the miles, and because the miles are just so staggering. Could you explain that background? Because this is how this is how Peter uh, and his sub- successors have an Asia to contact, at least a modern Asia to contact, right? Mm-hmm. Why well, I think the the key thing to understand about geography is the extent to which it's always been the case that most of the Russian population is uh, resident on the European frontier and that Siberia um, has been extraordinarily loosely populated and the Russian Far East all the way to the Pacific Ocean has been very, very lightly populated. Uh, And transport before the 20th century meant going over roads via uh, either by walking across them or be in a horse-drawn carriage of some sort, a wagon, um, over roads that were uh, notoriously uh, painful to travel over. And so it's, it's great fun to read the travel logs from the, the 19th century. Um, Chekhov, for example, traveled uh, to Sahalin Island um, and, and, and his description of the travel just sounds like the most unpleasant thing you could imagine. The, mm-hmm. the inns were, were horrible. Uh, the towns you had to stop in were, uh, the most destitute you, you, you could envision. And the roads themselves were only traversable in certain seasons. In the winter, uh, it was actually relatively good to travel because they were frozen over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was worse in the, in the spring when the rains would come and the snow would melt and it would turn into, uh, a, a big distance of, of mud between um, between Moscow and, and when you reach the, the Pacific coast. So the, the logistical dif- uh, difficulties were just really extraordinary. And, and today we think, you know, you can, it's a long way from Moscow to Vladivostok, but you can fly in eight or so hours. And, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, it wasn't eight or so hours. It was, it was months. Yeah. And, and that really is, is something that makes the Russian Empire very different from would, governing, it, say, France at the time. It made me think about how American um, American westward expansion was helped by a freak of the Ice Age. Um, the Ohio River and the Missouri River are only 10,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they happen to flow west and more or less east, respectively. You can actually go mm-hmm. down and up them. Um, that changes things a lot prior to the to the railroads, and it's on the other hand, the ice age was not good to Russia. Um, it's got all <laughs> those rivers that just and the Himalayas are in the way. It's got all those rivers that they flow north. Um, yeah. They don't lead yep. to any place you really want to go. 
mm-hmm. so everything has to be done by uh, foot or horse, um, which is slow. And then the other factor on top of that is the construction of the railroads mm-hmm. took place a half century later in Russia than it did in, say, the United States or in Canada, another transcontinental um, power. And that half century made an enormous difference because it meant that, well, the, the U.S. and Canada were, for example, building up their great metropolises on the Pacific coast from Vancouver to San Francisco. Uh, Vladivostok was just nothing but a frontier town that entire time. Uh, and it was just impossible to get people, resources any sort of functioning economic presence on the Pacific coast um, all the way into the Soviet period. And the, when it was built, and we'll get to this, there's, there's precisely one very famous rail line, right? I mean, that, 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 that's it. It's a very mm-hmm. thin neck uh, that sticks out. The, the Russian Far East is, is, has a very thin neck that it's balanced atop. And, and it's, it's, an, it's an economic issue because when one train breaks down, at least at first, uh, the, the entire track is, is blocked. But it's more importantly this military issue because it's impossible to defend uh, with any confidence from anyone from the south and very easy to break. This was the constant fear of Russian military planners uh, throughout the 20th century. Now, when these uh, Russians, Cossacks, uh, these adventurers, uh, people who are kind of a, a mashup of uh, you know traders and uh, warrior type warriors, as they're going east, they do run into populations. Um, it's hard to say, perhaps with any accuracy, how big the population was in Siberia. But you know, it's tough to make a living there. It must not have been that extreme. Um, mm-hmm. To whom were they connected? This is, becomes a this becomes a big difficulty later. Um, the Qing certainly believed that they're everyone's connected to them anyway. But mm-hmm. who, to whom do these people pay tribute? Well, it depends depends where you look, and I I think the honest answer is that the historical record in many cases is is somewhat vague. But it seems like there's pretty good evidence that when uh, the the first Russian explorers reached the Russian Far East. Mm-hmm. Um, the territory was at least in some nominal sense under the under Qing dur- jurisdiction. There were Qing officials there, uh, not perhaps with 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 great regularity, but there were some present. Uh, and and the Russian historiography and certainly Russian officials at the time like to uh, deny this, but but I think the evidence is pretty incontrovertible. Um, and there's been some great recent historical work on this very topic. And and so there always was, as a result, the, a, a matter not only of conquering local peoples, but imperial conflict uh, mm-hmm. at the center of this. Um, and, and so in that sense, there, there was sort of a fundamental difference between, for example, uh, American westward expansion, which was which was primarily not about imperial conflict. It was the expansion of one power. We can argue um, about that. <laughs> we, we can argue about that. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, um, the entire American foreign policy is to avoid having imper- um, other empires to tangle with. but Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Like, but like, I, I, but yeah. I guess I would say the, the the Russians started with the with, with the Chinese kind of yes. there before before they really seriously arrived, and so they always had to deal with this question of how do we push the Chinese um, out, and how do we keep the the British and later the Americans out, um, because it, the, the naval powers at the time were were, were the British above all. Mm-hmm. So you begin the book, the first sort of the, we've we've touched base. There's some fascinating stories about Peter and a Japanese. Um, castaway that is brought all the way to St. Petersburg. I mean, <laughs> my God. I mean, talk about out of the water, but um, we'll pass over that. I want to you begin the, the first full exploration is on, of all things, not Siberia, but Alaska. Now, why did you decide to go with the Alaskan adventure? Because that 
Um, is that is that really the first Russian initiative in the Asia and the Pacific? Is Alaska? Well, I, I would argue yes. Um, certainly, there was a, a state policy to support the expansion across Siberia um, that had been in place, um, you know, arguably since the, the the 15th or 16th century in certain ways. Though it really picked up steam um, um, as 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 time passed under Peter. But I think the the Alaska adventure was was really the first active colonizing process in a way that the expansion across Siberia would have happened regardless of whether there was state backing because it was driven by the profit motive of fur trappers. It was driven by people who were trying to open new land. And Alaska was driven by that too, but it was fundamentally something that wouldn't have happened without the state saying, we want to be there. Um, and, and the state saw that it wanted to be there in large part because it was thinking of the Pacific in this broader uh, geopolitical uh, conception. It was at the time thinking about uh, the expansion of British power, Captain Cook having been to Alaska in the late 1700s. It was uh, thinking about um, the, the the role of China in the broader commerce of the Pacific Ocean. It was thinking about how do you get Alaskan furs to Chinese markets. And so there really was this conception of a broad map of the Pacific Ocean with multiple empires at play. And if Russia didn't uh, set up a foothold in Alaska, there was genuine fear that the British or even at some point the Spanish, uh, who were, were still a big player in California at the time, might uh, at some point try to lay a claim to the land. And so in that sense, I think the Alaska was crucial because it was this, this first kind of geopolitically conceived expansionary effort. What's staggering, I mean, the distance already to say, um, to, to distance already to the coast of the Pacific in Siberia is staggering from St. Saint, Saint Petersburg, Petersburg. And then you add on that they're, they're sort of sorting this jigsaw puzzle of trade and international politics, which involves Hawaii, California, and Alaska, and China, and maybe Japan mm-hmm. too. Um, and they're doing it all from, and that's it's just the, the it's it's more than half. It's it is literally half the world away, and yet things are always so desperate in Alaska that it has to be supplied by ship from St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. um, which is just extraordinary. Could you describe the these immense problems of coordination in space? Well, if if you start from the biggest Russian port at the time on the Pacific, which was the port of Ahotsk, uh, which is a you know small city today, it's a bad harbor. It's not a good harbor, uh, and there's there's no real uh, in the the late 1700s and early 1800s. There's no real shipbuilding facility there. You can jerry rig something together, but it's not where you'd want to end up building your ships. Uh, but that that was the terminus when Russians trekked across Siberia. That's where you ended up at the time. Uh, and, and from there, it was possible to uh, construct ships that would take you to uh, Kamchatka, which was at the time, uh, there was a, a small Russian uh, settlement there. And then you could hop up the Aleutian Islands all the way uh, to Alaska, sort of island hopping version 1.0. And it, 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 it wasn't the most efficient. Uh, it certainly was a, a desperate uh, living uh, on the Alaskan islands uh, in the, the late 1800s and uh, or the late 1700s and early 1800s, but it was possible to eke out an existence. Most winters were marked by scurvy. Um, there was always a deficit of manufactured goods because they had to be shipped 
from Europe, but it, but it was possible. Um, once it became clear that it was possible to survive or at least have a, a large enough portion of your uh, settlement survive in Alaskan winter, then the question was, how do you make it sustainable? And, and here's where St. Petersburg was just too far away to be financially sustainable. The Russian government could subsidize it, uh, but it was impossible to, to sell it as a long-term plan in St. Petersburg. And so from there, you looked out southwards across the Pacific Ocean and said, where can I get food supplies? And the closest places you could sail to are Japan, but that's off limits, Hawaii, which is just due south of Alaska, uh, or California, uh, which is where Rosanov sailed to. It's fascinating that there, from the very beginning, there's been this strange Alaska-Hawaii connection because I mean, Alaskans <laughs> to this day spend at least a, a week, two weeks in Hawaii during the winter to, <laughs> to avoid being going insane. Um, but And also, I guess, you know, get juice and things and avoid scurvy. But yeah, it's, from the very beginning, there's connection. The machinations, the way that European politics then matches this with this attempt, um, the attempt, the dream of somehow getting Spain to sell California to the Russians there's a there's a contingent event, um, which a lot of things would have changed if that had been the case. Well, in, indeed, and, and you can see why the Russians thought that California really would have been the crux of this Trans-Pacific Empire, because it had uh, exactly the climate you want to uh, get agricultural production up and running to supply Alaska. It wasn't so far away that it was uh, economically infeasible. There was a beautiful harbor in San Francisco, and the only uh, empire with a claim to it was in the midst of uh, the Napoleonic Wars and the, a centuries-long decline. Um, so it's 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 not at all crazy from the time to have thought maybe this could be Russia's real outlet on the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was really I think only uh, thanks to the the expansion of the U.S., which is happening at the same time, that really made it uh, unfeasible. Had it not been for that, it's it's I think quite plausible you would have had a much more durable Russian presence. Uh, in California, and Spain, Spain just doesn't want to sell. They could have used the money, but they—that's they don't want to sell. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at some point, then Alaska is <laughs> put on ice. Um, it, they basically that long before 1867, and they they decide to sell Alaska. There's basically Alaska is not going anywhere. They they would love to find a buyer. I guess they I think decades before, prior to 1867. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so then their attention is, and then we go through another cycle or are there other cycles developing uh, at the time? Cause this is a long, this is a long dream. Um, what's the next sort of cycle in their Asian interest? Yeah. So I, I, I argue in the book that by around 1815, uh, certainly by the early 1820s, Russia has, has fully realized that this Pacific dream is just not going to be realized given the logistical constraints, given the fact that, California is not going to be a, a meaningful Russian colony, given the fact that they uh, can't actually establish a, a durable presence in Hawaii, although as an interesting counterfactual I like to play through in my head. And then for a, a couple of decades uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, which are ending at the same time, uh, Russia focuses on other, other issues. Um, the, the expansion of, of the Russian population across Siberia continues at a slow rate. Not uh, It's not a, a, a rush of people moving into Siberia or the Russian Far East. And uh, the Russian government itself doesn't really focus on the region at all until the 1840s in any sort of serious way. So you've got several decades of basically ignoring the Pacific coast. And then we've got uh, a very and, young go-getter 
very young. Uh, people think he's way too young. Who's made? <laughs> no, I, 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 was, I did a little extra reading. It was it was, it was really interesting. Um, who was a point governor of Siberia, um, and this is one of those interesting ways in which uh, Nicholas the First, um, as we discussed, uh, listeners will previously have heard um, me talking with uh, Paul Worth about 1837. It's one of the ways this arched archetypal autocrat is at the same time very curious. About, about could be very curious about things and becomes fascinated with the possibilities of Siberia, especially when this governor starts sell, selling them up. Can you tell, tell tell me about him? Well, I think that the first step is to think of if you were appointed governor of Siberia uh, in in the first half of the eighteen hundreds, uh, it was very far from Moscow or Saint Petersburg, and even further from the European capitals where you probably preferred to spend your time. Uh, it was a frontier post of frontier posts. And so if you wanted to make it worth your time, you had to accomplish something pretty grand mm -hmm. while you were there. And so I think that shapes how a lot of the uh, Russian officials uh, in Siberia and the Far East thought about their role. They were there to accomplish something. And, and, and the since most that, of them had some sort of military background, uh, you make right. it clear that we, and we'll get right. to some other other interesting characters. They always have military conquest on their mind, and that's they can't really conceive of success without some sort of military expansionism. And I think there's there's selection bias at play. If yeah. if if you were less interested in military conquest and more interested in something else, you would have found a better posting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it was only those <laughs> yeah. who were focused on 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 expansionism in that territorial sense that asked and and, and opted well, in to be posted I mean, the, on a frontier. Well, one of them could have said like in 1870, I don't know, let's build a railroad right now. Uh, that's going to be my thing. Let's let's increase. There's these very strange attempts. Well, even settlement was usually conceived of in garrison terms and in, in military garrison terms. But. Mm -hmm. well, and, and we know that uh, Moraviova Mursky, um, who was the, the governor that uh, you mentioned, had discussions about building a railroad uh, in uh, the 1840s or 1850s. I forget. I recall. I forget the specific date. But there were discussions underway about that. And obviously, it was just at the time totally impossible uh, to, to build a railway all the way across Russia. The, the first railways were just in the process of being built in Russia at all. Um, but nevertheless, the vision was there, the vision that you can connect all the way across from European Russia to the Pacific. And, and the, the point of that was seen as, as, as to be able to expand Russia's commerce in Asia and thereby bolster the Russian presence and undergird um, an expansion of Russia's territory vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Qing Empire and, and make Russia the most powerful of the great powers uh, in the region, and, and at the time, it's it's worth also also thinking about. Uh, you know, 1839, you have the first Opium War, so there is a lot of uh, imperial action in the Pacific at the time, which the Russians are are watching nervously because they realize that the Qing Empire is weak, that the British and the French uh, are are pushing into it, and that uh, although they're not predicting the collapse of the Qing, they are predicting weakness and see that both as a as a risk, but also as an opportunity. Now, you you gave the, uh, this. Governor has a double barrel name, and the second of them is Amursky. And there's a reason for that, uh, because he, his thing is a fascination with the Amur River, um, which he, I think, is he the one that says it will be our Mississippi, the Mississippi of Siberia? Um, Indeed. They, Indeed. Uh, they haven't read Mark Twain yet because he hasn't written, but they get the idea. They see what, uh, they see what uh, America is making out of the Mississippi and the Ohio and the Missouri, and they're going to try to do the same thing. So could you briefly describe this this fascination with the Amur River and 
when it, it, it does uh, link directly back to the Mississippi, because this is the time when you've have the, 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 the emergence of the steamship driving traffic in the Mississippi and the Ohio and other great river valleys. And so it's possible to imagine a lot of traffic up and down rivers, uh, both traffic in commerce, traffic in, in people. And the Amur is, is uh, one of the few great rivers that does flow east-west uh, in, in the Russian Far East. It, it uh, emerges in, in the, the mountains just to the east of Lake Baikal and then uh, gathers strength as it flows to the Pacific. And uh, it was seen by a number of Russian leaders, but uh, Muravyovomirsky chief among them as, as being both an artery that could sustain a whole lot of commerce and a territory that could sustain agriculture uh, which which was indeed proven true, although not to the extent that he had hoped. And then finally, a means of improving transport, uh, which was important not only for commercial goals, but also for military goals. Because again, before this period, if you wanted to get either military personnel or equipment uh, from Irkutsk, the biggest city in Siberia to the Pacific, you had to uh, lug it across uh, the mountains to the east of Baikal and then over some pretty messy roads all the way to the coast. Mm-hmm. So eventually... They succeed in grabbing this. Could you? Uh, they do this um, for those fans of like uh, George McDonald Fraser through the uh, the um, the offices of is it Pavel and Nasiev, who is like the the sinister diplomat of the czar of several czars, uh, who goes and negotiates with the Chinese to get control of the Amur Valley. But do they lose interest in the Amur? I mean, what's the what's the what's what, how does this cycle end? Well, during the the Second Opium War, uh, there's uh, great turmoil inside of China as as the country loses the war to the British and the French. And at the same time, uh, the the Russians are are, are looking for opportunity. Um, and so you've got the, the combination of this perceived threat from from British and French expansion, plus plus the weakness of uh, of the Chinese. Uh, and and from the perspective of Russian officials in uh, Siberia and the Far East, this is the perfect opportunity to grab a bunch of territory. And they succeed in doing so um, without fighting, but by deploying their military and threatening to fight if the Chinese uh, don't surrender the territory. And a couple of treaties are signed that give Russia big chunks of territory uh, along the Pacific coast, essentially the Chinese turning over uh, the territory that Russians had denied was actually under the control of the Qing Empire, but in fact, uh, at least to a certain extent, was. Um, but then what's striking about this is uh, Muraviova Mursky retires uh, shortly thereafter to Paris. Um, I noticed taking that. Advantage that was, of the- <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't staying on the Amur. He wasn't staying in the new da- Dasha on the Amur, in the Amur Valley. That's right. No, he, he, he was actually buried in Paris. You can still find his, his grave there. Um, and and it, it became clear in the years after uh, the conquest of the territory that although it's true the Amur was a, an east-west river that was navigable, although it was true that the the land was, uh, to a certain extent, um, hospitable for agriculture. Nevertheless, the dreams that this would become in a Russian Mississippi were were not fulfilled. Um, there was no impetus for settlement there other than garrisons, other than sending prisoners and garrisoning uh, different types of military forces. And there simply weren't enough military forces in all of Russia to populate the land in any sort of serious way. So just yeah. years, a couple of years after it was con- after it was conquered, uh, the Russian state began to reassess, well, what really is the value of this land? They didn't want to give it up. Uh, but again, it was roundly ignored for uh, a couple of decades once it became clear that there wasn't actually that great of a benefit in conquering it. I should um, also, what I found interesting was the way the intellectuals approached this. 
Um, and so you discussed the Petrushevsky circles uh, and and mm-hmm. and the way that they, um, what, what what who were they and how did they regard the Amor and I guess also the the empty spaces of the East, empty, in quotes. Um, yep. How did they regard? What was that? What's the benefit for Russia? What can Russia get from that? Yeah, well, the, there were I think two different uh, lines of thought that were were popular at the time, and both were a reaction to the sense of um, of political stagnation and excessive conservatism in in the the, the czarist elite at the time. One was a sort of more I guess we call it a more liberal um, approach, critical of 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 the czarist autocracy, which saw in Siberia and the Amur a space that could be more free. Mm-hmm. And so there were a number of radical intellectuals that were exiled there, a couple of anarchists who spent time in Irkutsk and, and further afield. Uh, and there was a sense in which the frontier would have been far enough from czarist power, and indeed it was in many ways pretty far from czarist power, that you could create a new Russian society that was uh, that, that, that wasn't controlled fully by the by, by the czarist elite. That was one vision. But there was a second vision as well, which ended up being more uh, influential because it, it was easier to, to mold alongside of, of the existing government's views. And that was a, a, a nationalistic um, sense of, of the, the benefits of territorial conquest for the Russian nation. And this view was uh, somewhat critical of the existing elite for being too conservative in a small C sense. Um, but it didn't want to overthrow the order. It wanted to reinvigorate it uh, and saw territorial conquest as a means of uh, reinvigoration. And Muraviova Mursky fell very squarely in this second category. He was a, a critic of, of what he saw as the old elite. Uh, he was unhappy with um, his elders. Uh, he thought they were, uh, they were stuck in, in, in stagnation, uh, attached to their old ways. And to him, this territorial conquest would open uh, new opportunities for Russia uh, in 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 terms of its foreign policy, in terms of its domestic politics, uh, in terms of its economics as well, and so it was actually a strategy of reinvigoration uh, rather than a, a strategy that was fundamentally critical of the existing order. The um, as we said, the Amor passes away as a dream, um, but there is always another one, and in this case, it brings a, a guy whose name I have been trying to pronounce since I discovered that he discovered a horse when I was about five and tried to pronounce it. Um, so should, should you do the honors for me there? What, uh, it's pretty sure. Well, it, it really depends whether you want to pronounce it in, in, in Russian or Polish form. So you'll, yeah. you'll anger someone no matter how you say it. We can go with Przewalski. Yeah, let's do that. Um, as you said, and he uh, is a really uh, insane character in, in many, many ways. He combines, he, he contains multitudes Um so here is a naturalist, a botanist, a collector. Uh, he, what, I think, on one one expedition, he collects three hundred uh, undiscovered species. Uh, he collects two thousand overall. But what he really wants to be is Cortez. Uh, he wants to conquer his Aztecs. He wants to be. He is. There's another dream of conquest. Uh, so could you explain uh, the area that he's interested in? And because this is a different a different part of Asia. This is much more in keeping with sort of things that have been going on since 1837, 1838, uh, the the attempted conquest of Kiva, the eventual conquest of Kiva, and the other, this this slow march into Central Asia. Yes, so so Russia had been um, slowly and and not very steadily in in sort of leaps and bounds um, expanding its, its presence in Central Asia 
uh, for some time by the by the middle of the 1800s, um, particularly across the steppe lands. It, it was just beginning to um, uh, to 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 send its military forces and uh, begin settling the, the the mountains and the valleys of Central Asia, which which it hadn't previously had a great presence in. Um, but that posed a number of dilemmas. One, there were a number of, of Khanates there uh, that thought the territory was theirs and weren't very happy about uh, the growing number of Russians that were uh, on or, or moving across their borders. But the, the bigger issue was actually the Qing Empire, which uh, saw the Khanates of Central Asia, not in many cases, as tributaries um, and had a, a long history of trading with them uh, and of of various types of political relations, um, loose political relations because just because of the distances that were involved, but nevertheless, uh, political ties. Uh, and, and so that meant that when Russia began um, expanding its footprint, for example, uh, in, in the Fergana Valley or in, in present day uh, Kyrgyzstan or Uzbekistan, that was not only a question for the Khanates there, it was also a question for China. And, and there were a number of people in, in Russia who really recognized what was at stake. It wasn't just a Central Asian question, it was a China question. And, and thought that it was a good thing if Russia could, by expanding its footprint in Central Asia, simultaneously uh, keep down the, the Khans who were uh, governing that territory, but also uh, really weaken the Qing Empire's control over their entire western frontier. And so from uh, Mongolia in the north all the way to Tibet in the south, going through contemporary Xinjiang, uh, there was a sense that Qing control was weak, which indeed it was, and that a little bit of pressure could, uh, if not topple the Qing, at least push the Qing outside of uh, the vast swath of lands in the western borderlands, something like half the territory of contemporary China, uh, which the Qing Empire really did uh, struggle at that time to keep control over. I mean, there's a dream that Russia can have Tibet. I know Przewalski, his great um, disappointment in life was never making it to Lhasa. Um, but Indeed. he also imagined leading an army there or, or taking it by force. And then this goes into the 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 British-Russian conflict. This is sort of like we can mm -hmm. we can finally settle the Crimean War. Uh, the embarrassments <laughs> of that. Uh, this is and this you know, the, the phrase jingoism is first developed, I think, in 1885 from uh, mm -hmm. one of these crises in Central Asia, which that. Where, where the British and Indian civil service is getting excited that the Russians are moving too close, too fast to, to India. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wait, and what, what I was struck by in, in, in the research for, for this section of the book is there's, there's a lot of excellent research on, on kind of what's popularly known as the great game between Russia and Britain. Um, but I was really struck by the extent to which we didn't fully realize that China was a key player here. Mm -hmm. um, not a not a particularly powerful player because for many uh, for many years it was it was the the weak link in 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 the chain of regional relationships. But both the British and the Russians and the, the Central Asian Khanates thought that China was a fundamental actor and that what happened in Central Asia would uh, shape the fate of the Qing Empire. And, and I think that's right to think that people at the time were correct to realize that uh, China's fate uh, was at stake. It's, it's easy, I think, to imagine a counterfactual history in which uh, the Chinese had failed to reconquer uh, Xinjiang after uh, the rebellion at the time, and uh, that the consequences would have been really profound, not only for contemporary Xinjiang, which obviously it would be, but also for all of the other borderlands that China was struggling to hold, from Yunnan to Tibet to mm -hmm. Mongolia to, to parts of Manchuria, which were also at the time uh, still being contested by, uh, by, by the Russians and also by uh, Korean settlers. Um, so I think there is, there is an interesting question to ask, which is, 
you know, suppose the Chinese hadn't succeeded in the end in defending their borders, how drastic would the effects in China have been? Well, that's uh, going to lead us on to the next uh, step in, the, in this uh, chain of uh, events. But before that, uh, talking about all this distance has made me very tired, so I think we should take a quick break. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. Okay, um, we so far we've been talking about Russia and China a lot. Um, but now Japan, um, the next phase of, of Russia's preoccupations with the East uh, really centers on Japan. So could you talk a little bit about one of the most interesting, probably one of the most interesting Russian uh, po politician statesmen of, of, of its history, which is Sergius, Sergius Vita, uh, Baltic German, I guess, uh, of some kind. Um, um, who was he and how did he, how, what's his connection to Siberia and to the, let's call it the Eastern Project? So Vita is one of the most fascinating characters in, in all of uh, 19th and early 20th century Russia. He was born to uh, an aristocratic family, uh, but an aristocratic family that had come along, uh, come, come, come upon hard times economically. So although he grew up with some social status, in fact, he, he was far from um, one of the wealthy elites. And he grew up in uh, Tbilisi and then uh, later in in Ukraine, so again in the on the frontier to a certain extent, not in in Moscow or Saint Petersburg, uh, and and he made his name not thanks to his uh, family, but rather in the railroad business, uh, which at the time was a, a fast growing but seen as a little bit of a, a greasy business to be in. It it wasn't really fully befitting of a, a nobleman to be involved in that type of business. But it was uh, because of the growth, it was a place where one could uh, make a name for himself and make a whole lot of money in the process and become very influential. And that's that's what Vita did. And he came to the um, came to the the knowledge of of uh, the government in St. Petersburg thanks to his efficiency in running the railroads. Um, and so his 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 expertise was fundamentally as a manager and a bureaucrat. Uh, and in some ways, this marks him out as somewhat unique of of all of of all of the, the great czarist leaders, because so few of them uh, were 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 trained in any sort of way as 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 managers or bureaucrats. None of the czars, for example, had any sort of management uh, experience. And indeed, I think any assessment of their abilities to to manage their own uh, ministers would have given them pretty low marks. But but Vita was known as, as being someone who could manage the bureaucracy and use it to crush his enemies. And there's some some fantastic quotes of people who were crushed by him saying. Uh, that he was able to to marshal bureaucratic power in a way that no one else of his age was, and so he was appointed transport minister and then finance minister, and and quickly became uh, someone who really dominated all aspects of the Russian government, from foreign policy to domestic economic issues uh, to, of course, the railroads. And and being a railroad man uh, by profession, uh, he when he looked to Asia, saw railroads as being fundamental to Russia's strategy. He perceived both the Chinese and the Japanese markets at the time is growing uh, and thought that Russia had a unique advantage given that all it needed to do 
It sounds so simple in theory. All I needed to do was build a railroad there and it could access those markets. It just uh, needs to build a railroad. He, just. To just let a railroad be built. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then two decades later, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. one was finally built. So when did it, so, so is the Trans-Siberian Railroad is really his conception? Well, I mean, you that's a, there, that's there, a hard there, there are other people have conceived it, but yes. does, does he really kick the ball forward or, or what's I, I think that's fair to say. It would not have happened uh, at the time it did without him. Yeah. Um, and when, um, but yeah, at the same time, when, when did it begin and, and when was it completed? Well, that's also an interesting question because yeah. uh, dating the beginning depends on where you think it starts. There were, of course, railroads heading um, heading eastward from Moscow quite early on because that's that was a place where many of the railroads were built. Uh, but it, so it's, it 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 doesn't really pick up steam until the 1880s. And then it's it's finished, uh, you know, decades later. It's finished, um, you know. And again, you can kind of debate when exactly it was properly finished. But in the 1910s, it was mm-hmm. um, really really finalized. Um, so it takes a very, very long time uh, to build, in part because uh, the the geography it has to cut through is just quite difficult. So it has to go first across Lake Baikal, uh, and then so there's tracks laid across the ice in the winter, uh, and then a, a year-round track was built around uh, Lake Baikal uh, uh, later on. Uh, but the bigger issue was that uh, Russian territory. Um, curved in an arc north of China. And so if you wanted to have the railroad entirely in Russian territory, you had to add uh, over a thousand miles of track uh, to keep it in Russia. It was far easier to build a straight line from uh, the line east of Lake Baikal all the way to uh, the terminus at Vladivostok. And that was very efficient in terms of railroad engineering, but it was uh, it raised the problem of geopolitics because that railroad would be cut directly through territory that China thought was its own. So this leads to further... Um tensions with China or desire for China. But it also, um, it also the, this idea of then uh, having a permanent connection to the Pacific coast brings back once more the idea of a better port. So they do have Vladivostok. Where does Port Arthur come into this? And, and please describe what that leads to. So Vladivostok is, is a beautiful port, actually. It's, a, it's, it's, it's been a, a very effective port for the Russian Navy uh, for the past hundred years. Uh, and in terms simply of uh, the the structure of the port itself, there there wasn't really a reason why Vladivostok wasn't accurate. Uh, it did get a little bit icy in the winter, but that probably wasn't enough. Um, but at the same time that Russia was building its railroad to the east, uh, the Chinese, uh, the, the Qing Empire was losing control over China and China was being carved up by a number of different powers. The British and the French had been there for a long time, but it was really the the newer imperial powers, the Germans and the Japanese that were uh, worrying uh, to the Russians because uh, being late to the game, the Germans and the Japanese were more uh, in a hurry to grab territory of their own. And that threatened in the view of policymakers in St. Petersburg, uh, the position of Russia, because if everyone was grabbing territory except for Russia, then Russia they feared would be left out. Uh, And so that's why... And I was fascinated to see that Nicholas II, when he did his grand tour, it was of Asia. Um, Indeed. Uh, so he had a preoccupation with Asia dating back to that. I mean, he hated everything he saw, but I mean, it, it would seem. But sort of like his, uh, I guess it was his grandfather had taken a very important trip through Siberia, which was talked about with Paul Worth um, and as part of his, as a crown prince. Um, that was sort of his one of his grand tours, that, which influenced him greatly. Likewise, Nicholas had a very important grand tour. Um, and so he came to really dislike the Japanese. 
uh, on a personal visceral level. And he wasn't the only one. Indeed. Indeed. But I think you could argue that Nicholas really had the best education in Asian affairs of any Russian leader ever, Mm -hmm. um, given the number of territories that he visited and the time that he spent on his grand tour. Uh, which uh, didn't correlate with uh, him actually learning anything no. uh, from his time in Asia, <laughs> but certainly he'd spent a lot of time there. But he forgot. Uh, and, and he, was, he learned nothing and forgot nothing, as what Talleyrand said. That's, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this extraordinary story: his final couple of days in Japan, where he's stabbed by a policeman, um, and, and it, it seems like he was almost killed. It's it's hard to be sure from the sources, but it seems like he easily could have been killed. Um, well, that, that will sour I, your impression of the, of, of the, of the, you know, kingdom. Indeed. And it, the Japanese emperor very quickly came to apologize and, and the Japanese really weren't sure what, what did it. It's not exactly clear what the motives of the policemen uh, even were, but uh, certainly it's the case that Nicholas didn't, uh, didn't uh, draw any sort of positive associations on Japan. And, and it, it's interesting that he more than um, more than most was obsessed with this, this, this concern about the quote unquote yellow peril, yeah. which makes it more and more into his writings at the time, mm-hmm. both related to, to China, but more importantly of Japan. Uh, and, and there was a, a really, I think, bizarre and, and again, fundamentally irrational uh, definition of this in his mind, because he thought the Japanese were weak uh, that they they lacked the backbone, that they would never uh, go to war with him. But at the same time, he thought they were deeply worrisome as a as a rising power. And uh, it's hard to square these uh, in your mind. The Japanese were, were, were weak and unwilling to fight, but also dangerous. Uh, and yet Nicholas tried to keep this in his mind all the way until the Japanese attacked Port Arthur in 1904. So there, there's, a, there's a way in which um, you could square that by um, – he sees them as kind of a virus – they're dangerous, but small and and foul. But they're like a bacteria or a virus. They're, you know, they're, 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 that, that's the way I think he does. I, there's a, one thing you quoted where he uses – he says something really terribly racist. It's like double racist. He, uh, he, com- he It's both anti-Semite and uh, anti-Japanese. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah. really – really, this was not the part of Nicholas II. I, I know nothing about Nicholas II, so that was very interesting. I had no idea he made this journey, and uh, it obviously made a great impact on him. But does it, it's, it, I would hate to say that that's what led, le- leads to the Russo-Japanese War. It's more than that. Um, it's, it's more than that. In addition to that, you've got the, the, the geopolitical story, um, Japan's rise and Russia's unwillingness to give Japan – um, uh, the, the type of uh, role in East Asia that Japan thinks is is justly owed to it. And then on top of that, you've got this extraordinary story of uh, disputes within the Russian leadership as to who's actually in charge of Russian policy uh, in East Asia and in Korea at the time. And, and there's, there's great stories of, of the czar being an investor in a lumber company that is uh, involved in Korea, appears to have been hiring local militias, uh, and and seeing it by the Japanese as potentially ri- raising a militia to uh, undercut Japanese authority, and all of this was done outside of formal Russian power structures. In fact, the Russian military commanders were somewhat dismayed uh, to realize that uh, that, th- that they weren't uh, fully in charge in the Pacific Coast. And that in fact, Nicholas's buddies uh, were were raising their own private armies of Chinese bandits to to fight against the Japanese. And so we've got the Russo-Japanese War as a result of this, which is, has to be one of the most significant small wars. Uh, it has a lot of consequences come out of that. Could we briefly how this Russian adventure, how it basically changes everything? 
Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating conflict, I think, because although it was limited in terms of its geographic scope and it never expanded beyond uh, Russian and Japanese participation, uh, it, in fact, it was hugely uh, hugely bloody. It was it 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 really, I think, presaged the the bloodshed of the First World War in terms of the the tactics of the fighting, uh, and in terms of the industrial scale scale killing on both sides. Uh, and it also, like the First World War, illustrated that when you have conflicts of this scale uh, and of of a shorter duration, but still a sustained duration, they threaten not only um, the the destruction of the war itself, but also uh, potentially call into question the stability of the societies that are waging them. Mm-hmm. And the, the revolution that Russia faces uh, as the war is ending, the 1905. Uh, revolution is is really just an act one for the the revolution that's to follow twelve years later and and I think since J- the Japanese won the war we we often forget the extent to which it was deeply destabilizing for the Japanese at home too but they also suffered immensely uh, and and I think a third party that suffered is of course the Chinese on whose territory the war was actually fought mm-hmm. um, some, somewhat extraordinary that the Chinese managed to uh, have a war fought in their territory without participating in it I was thinking it's yeah. <laughs> one of a uh, an interesting case study. Yeah. And uh, of course, and Japan all of a sudden introduced itself as a major nation on the world stage by destroying not one, but two Russian fleets. Uh, uh, and by laying down sort of the principles of tactical offensive that they'll follow at Pearl Harbor, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it's a deeply consequential uh, uh, war. Um, I, I want, we're, we're running out of time. Uh, we should, uh, we, I want to skip over the sort of Bolshevik involvement, but we should just say that it is, it is fascinating, um, and it gets to your point, that when things don't work out with the invasion of Poland, when things don't work out with revolution in Germany, r- the Russians it, are snapping their fingers, saying, okay, now what, what are we going to do now? What, oh, China. That, that's an obvious next choice is just China. Well, we'll convert China. The crazy thing, of course, is ultimately it worked. Um, but that in some ways, this that might be the great, the one great plan in the book that actually worked. And it worked in the most unexpected way possible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, but let's conclude because um, if you read the news, um, you know that Vladimir Putin, uh, his Xi Jinping has said that Putin is his best friend. Uh, which uh, if I was Putin, that would make me worried. But um, but whatever. And then Putin has described he's got to pivot to Asia, just as President Obama had one. So does so the Russian. But as you made clear. Um, Russians have been pivoting to Asia for some time. So what do you see as, um, what are some of the similarities and are there any differences from this pivot to the next? Other than that, they aren't openly discussing military conquest uh, of, of the Chinese borderlands. That's that's different. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there are a couple of similarities of the current period of, 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 of fascination and, and fixation on, on making Russia a bigger player in Asia. Um, one is on the, the ideological front. Uh, you, you see very similar debates now, as you saw in previous iterations, of uh, trying to assert Russian difference from Europe and doing so by playing up Russia's Asian vocation as something that, that makes Russia distinct. And, and in some cases, this ties all the way back to the, the, the Mongol invasions, or, or at least it, it, it asserts a sort of greater Eurasian uh, heritage that is, is partly Asian and partly European. And that's one key similarity. A second is the extent to which 
politics is trying to drive a broader economic and social transformation rather than following it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and here too, I think there's some some interesting similarities with people like uh, Vita, who who thought that he could will into existence trade with with China and, and trade with Japan uh, by creating a railroad. And in fact, he succeeded in creating a railroad, but didn't get any of the economic benefits and, that and flowed from it. More of a, if only the Amor was navigable, then Siberia will open up. And then we'll just, indeed, just, indeed. Grab, just grab it. And when we're still waiting for the Russian Mississippi to materialize, and, yeah. it, and I think there's there's some similarity with with the the Russia China economic relationship today, which is a lot less substantive uh, than than you would think. But I think the key the key similarity is the extent to which even those Russian officials that are the most committed at a political level to friendship with Beijing today are still uh, deeply focused on the West. Uh, their children are educated in British boarding schools. Uh, they vacation, at least those who are not sanctioned, in the south of France. Uh, they ski in Switzerland, uh, and they keep their money in, in in Swiss banks. And and I think this is really fundamentally important. The the image of of Moraviova Mursky, who conquered the Amur and then retired and died in Paris, is still alive and well uh, in Russian elite thinking. And Ignatia, uh, and Ignatiev, he died in Nice. I found indeed, out. Indeed. <laughs> but it, it, it's actually extraordinary that the places where the 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 officials of the late czarist era uh, vacationed and lived are the same that the Russian oligarchs yeah. vacation and live today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, you know when we uh, I was t- did the interview with uh, Philip Zelikow about his book on the uh, 1916 peace talks and their um, failure. I was asking him um, sort of a preoccupying question for me and for the podcast: uh, What can you actually learn from history? Um, because it doesn't seem like, you know, as a cynical about, cynic about this, you hear this, you know, and you hear this a lot that you're in the Fletcher school, you're, you're teaching practitioners. Um, and certainly the naive view is, of course, those who can forget the past are condemned to repeat it. But we do a lot of forgetting. And, and it doesn't seem that people who study the history have a much better v- vision of what to do than other ones, uh, other people. Zelico Demir, and he said it wasn't a question of studying patterns or templates. It was a question of studying problems and of how other people have confronted problems, which is a very interesting way, I think, of looking at it. I'm not sure I've heard people talk about it like that before. Um, and of course, the whole, this whole book is, is about, um, People, uh, Russians confronting the problem of Asia, confronting the problem of Russianness in many, in some ways, mm-hmm. and then trying to figure, making, hatching grand plans to deal with it, all of which either don't work at all, or as you said, with the Bolsheviks in China, worked in the most unexpected of ways. Do you, I mean, what what is it like to study a history of failure or an unexpected uh, victory? I mean, what's the value of that? Well, I, w- I would say a couple of things. I think first is is a realization of, of limits that are likely to be binding, or at least might be binding in, in many different contexts. Um, I, I'm struck by, even in a study that is fundamentally about politics, which, which this book is, the ways in which geography and logistical factors were yeah. just fundamentally important at every step of the way. Uh, and it's easy, I think, to, today to think that We've somehow got got past the limits of geography in in our age of zooming, but that's certainly not true. Uh, and and so I, I think that's that's one thing that really does stand out to me. There's always a new technology that's promising to uh, abolish distance and and transform logistics. Or, or I mean, you begin the book with 
Peter the Great dreaming of going through the Arctic Ocean to China. And guess who's dreaming about that now? <laughs> the, the current leader of Russia is also dreaming about this. Um, and, and who's to say this time he might have global warming on his side, but I kind of am thinking that he'll be no more successful than all the previous people for complex reasons. I, I would be with you on that bet. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so did I broke into you? Did, did you, did, did you finish your thought? Well, maybe a, a second uh, way we can try to learn from from studying the history. I, to me, I think the, the the other key thing we can draw, and maybe this this maps onto what what Zellico was talking about, is 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 trying to see the world through the eyes of people in the past, because it's hard to see the eyes of uh, see the world through the eyes of people in the present, since we've got so many preconceptions about people around us and how they think. It's in some ways easier to put on the lenses of, of people who lived 200 years ago, I find. Mm-hmm. Um, although you know less about how they thought, you've got fewer preconceived notions you've got to uh, work through before you can see the world honestly. Uh, and so I think that's quite helpful in, in envisioning how others, uh, how others see the world from the perspective of, of Moscow or St. Petersburg or, or, or the Pacific coast of Russia. Uh, and so I like the, those thought experiments. I, I think don't tell you exactly how anyone's going to act today, but they, they get you in the the rhythm of, of, of putting yourself in the shoes of other policymakers. Mm-hmm. Well, my guest today has been Chris Miller. He's the author of We Shall Be Masters, Russia's Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin. Chris, thanks so much for once again being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me.